listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Stonegate and to our wider church family online, welcome to Easter. Christians have gathered for the last 20 centuries to celebrate the life death, and resurrection of Jesus. And, you know, the resurrection of Jesus is not some nuanced theological point. It is central to Christianity. It's the hinge on which the whole of Christianity hangs. I love how John Stott talks about this. He said, Christianity at its essence is a resurrection religion. If you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. And that's so true. If Jesus is dead, then Christianity is dead. But if Jesus is alive, then Christianity is alive. I love how a friend of mine says it. He says, if the resurrection didn't happen, nothing really matters. But if the resurrection did happen, nothing else really matters. And it's that that I want to think through with you today. I want to think through with you, why is it that the resurrection matters so much? You know, if you look back in human history, there have been many significant events. But why does the resurrection stand above them all? Why does the resurrection matter? Well, in a lot of ways, that is the point and really the question that Paul is trying to answer in 1 Corinthians 15. He's writing to say the resurrection matters and here's why. So I want to consider straight from the pen of the Apostle Paul why the resurrection matters. I want to consider with you three reasons why it matters today. Three reasons why the resurrection matters. Here's the first reason. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, tells us the resurrection matters because it assures we're forgiven. It assures we're forgiven. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, Paul says this, And if Christ has not been raised, if that's true, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You are still in your sins. According to the scriptures, the greatest problem facing humanity is this. It's the problem of forgiveness. The worst thing, ultimately the only thing that can ruin you and me forever is for this to be true about us. That you are still in your sins. And that problem of sin takes us all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 when our first parents sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit. And there in Genesis 1 and 2, the scriptures show God's sentence for sin. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God says to Adam and Eve, For in the day that you eat of it, the day that you sin against me, for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Paul says something very similar in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Paul says, The wages of sin is death. So we can eat all the broccoli we want. Uh, We can take all the vitamins we want. We can go to the gym all we want. We can sniff essential oils all we want. Uh, But the Bible is really clear. It's clearly teaching us that there will be a day because of sin when we breathe our last. Or as Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so also death spread to all men because all sinned. 
the scriptures present sin as the deadliest of all viruses. And that virus of sin has spread into the hearts of every single human being, making death an unavoidable reality for us all. But uh, the scriptures show us that physical death is not the only or the ultimate sentence for sin. For those who die in their sin, not in Christ, but for those who die in their sin, physical death is not the last enemy. The scriptures are clear that God himself is the last enemy. For those who die in their sins, the scriptures show that death is really the dark doorway that ushers us directly into the wrath of God. Now, I know any sort of talk about wrath in the modern world has a way of sort of offending us. I think it was R.C. Sproul who said the greatest myth of the 20th century is that there is no wrath in God. But maybe Jesus has you here this morning listening to these words this morning to consider these things. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as it was appointed for man to die once, and after that, judgment. It was appointed for man to die once, and after death comes judgment. Uh, on that day, when we stand before the risen Jesus, who is now our judge, if we are banking on anything other than Jesus, we will be ruined forever. The scriptures are just so clear on that. Rather than the sweet, satisfying grace of God, if we die in our sins apart from Jesus, we'll find the bitter wrath of God waiting for us. This is why our greatest problem is not COVID-19. Our greatest problem is not a job or a lack thereof. Our greatest problem is not education. Our greatest problem is not poverty, all of which we should care about. But the scriptures are clear. This is why our greatest problem is sin and the death it brings both now and forever. Church, if God holds our sins against us, there is no hope. There is no hope if he holds our sin against us. But church, the empty tomb gives our heart a reason to sing and dance and shout for joy. Easter is God's announcement to the world that sin, death, and judgment do not get the last word. They do not have the final say. Look again at verse 17. Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul is saying without the resurrection, the events of Good Friday mean nothing. It was just a good Jew having a really bad day. That was all Good Friday was. Uh, without the resurrection, it was, it was all meaningless. But Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15 is Jesus did raise from the dead. He did walk out of the grave. Jesus is alive. Forgiveness of sin can be had. Humanity's greatest problem is now solved in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So what does the resurrection of Jesus reveal? Where, well, the scriptures show us what it reveals. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus shows us that the Father was satisfied in the Son's sacrifice for our sin. That's what the resurrection reveals. That the Father was satisfied with the Son's sacrifice for our sin. You could think of the resurrection as God's stamp of approval on Jesus' sacrifice. Uh, what the cross secured, the resurrection assures. 
You could think about the two like that. With the cross secured, the resurrection assures. On the cross, the penalty of our sin bloodied and bruised Jesus. And because of the cross, the perfection of Jesus now blesses us. What we deserved, Jesus got on the cross. And because of the cross, what Jesus deserved, we now receive. That's the beauty of what the cross secures. But the resurrection now assures those things. Maybe you could think of the resurrection like this. The resurrection functions like a receipt. Now, now what is a receipt? A receipt is proof of payment. That's what, that's what a receipt is, is doing. It's, it's proving that you have paid it. And the resurrection is the receipt. It's the receipt that everything purchased by the dying love of Jesus is right and good in the Father's eyes. This is how we know. The resurrection is how we know that the Father was satisfied in the Son's sacrifice for our sin. The resurrection is really the guarantee on this great gospel promise that if we are in Jesus, we are no longer in our sin. The resurrection assures that. If we are in Christ, we are no longer in our sin. Easter announces grace to the guilty. God's provision for all those deserving punishment. It's reminding us, it's assuring us that if we are in Christ, we are no longer in our sins. So let's take a moment to apply this. Are you certain that your sins are forgiven? Gosh, there is just no more important question to deal with today than that. Are you certain that your sins are forgiven? And the Bible is clear. There is only one way to forgiveness of sin, and that is through faith in Jesus. And faith in Jesus is not just agreeing with a few facts about Jesus. It's not just agreeing that Jesus came and lived and died and rose from the dead. Faith in Jesus is what happens when those things come alive in us, causing us to turn from all of the sin that we know disqualifies us before God. But not just turning from our sin. Faith also allows us to turn from all of those good things in our life that somehow we think qualify us before the Lord. Faith is turning from all of that. The bad things we know disqualify, the good things we think qualify us, and throwing our life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's it's coming to God with the empty hands of faith. And when we do that, God looks at us and says, can I make this deal with you? It's an amazing deal. It almost feels too good to be true. The Lord looks at us and says, could we make this deal? Would you be humble enough to let me take your sin from you? Would you open up your hands and allow me to to take all of your sin from you? And for those who are humble enough to say yes to God, he then says, okay, now here's the second part of the deal. Would you be so humble as to let me put the perfect record of Jesus' righteousness his perfect life, would you allow me to put that in your hands? And for all of those who come poor in spirit, humble enough to say yes to that, the resurrection assures you're forgiven of your sin. This is why the resurrection matters. It assures we're forgiven. But that's not all it does. It's a beautiful thing that it does, but it's not all that it does. The resurrection also matters Because it secures a bright future. 
The resurrection secures a bright future. Rather than a supernatural world filled with wonder and mystery and life beyond the grave, uh, we live in what one sociologist calls a super flat world. Not supernatural, but super flat. You could think of a super flat world as a world without windows. A world without windows. The The dominant ethic in a world without windows is this life. The life that we're living right now, this life is all there is. There is no, there is nothing supernatural. Your life has no meaning beyond the grave. This one short, unpredictable life is all you have. That's a world without windows, a super flat world. But the the resurrection of Jesus is one of God's remedies to our windowless world. The resurrection has a way of opening back up the windows in this world. It reminds all of those in Christ that, that our best life is not now. Our best life is waiting for us on the other side of the grave. This is Paul's point in verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And then listen to what he calls the resurrection of Jesus. He says, this resurrection of Jesus, it's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, when Paul says that that the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, he's saying that what happened to Jesus on the third day is like, you could think of it like a movie trailer. It's, it's a preview of coming attractions. It's just giving us a glimpse of what's awaiting every son and daughter of God. It, it's intended to wet our taste buds for the day that's coming when God takes every remaining wrong in this world and makes it right. That's what first fruits is, is doing for us. A friend of mine often summarizes the good news of Jesus like this. We're all idiots. That's the humbling sort of first part of it. Number two, we have an incredibly bright future in Jesus. And number three, anyone, anyone can get in on this. And this is what Paul's saying. Paul is saying the resurrection opens the window to this incredibly bright future that Jesus is welcoming and inviting us into. Now, if you're watching today and when you think of the resurrection of Jesus, you just can't believe it. It, it, just, seems, it just seems too too far beyond what is reasonable. You, you just can't get yourself to a place of thinking, man, I can, I can believe that. I can buy into that. Uh, well, let me just say this maybe in response to that. You should at least want to believe it. it even if you can't believe it, you should at least want to believe it because uh, The deepest parts of our soul long for what the resurrection alone can deliver. There's an ache for the resurrection in you and in me. Last summer, I turned 40, and that is painful in and of itself. But at the same time, I recently read an article that was trying to answer this question. When are people at their physical peak? When does that happen in a human life? And the answer in that article was in their mid-20s, kind of mid to late 20s. That is as good as it's going to get for us in this life. Now, that's what makes aging so hard, right? If you're like above 35, you're starting to feel the effects of aging. I'm 40 and I can't sneeze without throwing out my back now. It's unbelievable. 
but, but as we grow older, more of our pieces and parts begin to break down. Uh, we experience the loss of things physically that in this life we'll never get back. Vibrancy, energy, strength, durability, beauty. And deep down, we all hate it. Now, what is that dislike in us? Why do, we, why do we just innately rebel against those losses that we're all enduring physically? Well, the scriptures would say that dislike is a longing for resurrection. It is a longing for resurrection. Those longings are signposts pointing us to resurrection promises that one day everything that our enemies of Satan, sin, and death have taken away, God will give back and he'll give it back in a better way. That's what those dislikes in us are all pointing to. Now, now you might ask, well, Paul, how is God going to give us those things back? How is that going to happen? Well, Paul spends an entire chunk of uh, 1 Corinthians 15 just sort of wetting our taste buds for our resurrection bodies. They're not, just, they're not just the body of Lazarus. You know, Lazarus, he was raised from the dead, but he got the same body back. Our resurrected bodies are not the same body. It is a completely different type of body. And in a lot of ways, the, the scriptures just invite us to begin to imagine and ponder and consider what these resurrection bodies might be like. When Jonathan Edwards is doing that, he asked the question, he said, I wonder if rather than just five senses like our physical bodies have now, what if our resurrection bodies have like thousands of senses to take in more of God's beautiful creation and more of God himself? When C.S. Lewis is thinking about our resurrection bodies, listen to how he just imagines and thinks about this. He says that he, uh, talking about God, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, this is his view of resurrection body, just imagining what it might be like, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. Here's the imagery he uses. He says, this is what a resurrection body might be like. A bright, stainless mirror, which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, on a smaller scale, he says, God's own boundless power and delight in goodness. That is what we are in for, he says, and nothing less. C.S. Lewis went on to say, if, if you could see what your fellow Christian will one day be like, if you could see that right now, you would be tempted to fall to your knees and worship them. That's his view, just imagining what our resurrected bodies might be like. Can you imagine living for all eternity with unending vibrancy, strength, beauty, and health? Part of, what, part of what the resurrection of Jesus is doing is reminding us that our brightest days are not in our mid to late 20s. Our brightest days are on the other side of the grave. You know, the scriptures have an interesting way of just talking about life now, this life that you and I are experiencing. And the Bible really considers this life pre-life. It's not even real life. 
It's it's such a diminished version of what life will one day be that it considers it pre-life. But real life, real life is going to be the life that we all experience and enjoy on the other side of the grave. And real life includes a resurrected body. But it doesn't just include a resurrected body. It it includes um, also a fully resurrected heart. Do you ever look at yourself in the mirror and just ask, why do I keep falling and failing and stumbling again and again and again in virtually every area of my life? Why do I keep doing that? You know, when I think about my life, there there has been no one in my life disappoint me more than me. And what is that disappointment? What, What is that? Well, that disappointment is a want for resurrection. It is a longing for resurrection. Can you imagine what it's going to be like to live in a world where, where all the sort of remaining sin in us is, is fully and finally gone? Can you imagine what that life will feel like? Can you imagine what it's going to feel like to, to wake up and no longer need to be hell-bent on killing sin that still remains in us because Jesus has finally and fully killed it all for us? Can you imagine those days? I love what my friend Ray Ortland says. He says, don't see your life now as the final measure of your happiness, your worth, and your significance. And then listen to what he says. He says, this present life of sighs and groans will one day yield to shouts and dances. That's what the resurrection promises. The resurrection reminds us that there is a day coming where we will receive new bodies and fully renewed hearts. And then we'll get to live in a fully renewed earth where we'll experience and enjoy God forever. That day is coming. That's the incredibly bright future the resurrection secures for us. But as great as that is, the resurrection doesn't just secure a bright new future. The resurrection matters because it also empowers the present. The resurrection empowers the present. Now you see this in the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15. It's verse 58. Now listen to how Paul concludes the chapter on the resurrection. Here it is, verse 58. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now let's think that verse through for a moment. The point of the verse is Paul saying, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's that's the point, that's the concluding thought to to this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, be steadfast, that's unshakable. That means being deeply rooted, not wavering. Be steadfast, be immovable, he said. Uh, That's kind of the idea of not shifting. So, So be steadfast, unmovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, what does the work of the Lord mean? The work of the Lord isn't just overtly spiritual things like maybe praying or preaching or pastoring. The work of the Lord is 
everything done in life to the glory of Jesus. That's the work of the Lord. Everything done in life to the glory of Jesus. It's eating dinner to the glory of Jesus. It's parenting to the glory of Jesus. It's hammering a nail to the glory of Jesus. It's uh, creating in your work for the glory of Jesus. It's changing diapers for the glory of Jesus. It's caring for parents who are aging to the glory of Jesus. It's everything done in life to the glory of Jesus. And Paul says we are to be a Bounding in that work. We are to be overflowing, just teeming with this sort of work. We're to be laboring, abounding in this, in the work of the Lord. Now, that begs the question, well, Paul, how do we do that? What empowers that abounding in the work of the Lord? Well, Paul shows us here in this verse. Look at the bookends of the verse, how it starts and how it finishes. Here's the beginning of verse 58. The first word is therefore. Now that word therefore connects verse 58 to the rest of 1 Corinthians 15. It connects it back to the content of 1 Corinthians 15. What has Paul been talking about? He's saying in light of the resurrection of Jesus, in light of the empty tomb, in light of the fact that Jesus is alive, in light of Jesus being the first fruits of all of those who are in him, in light of all of that, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. The resurrection empowers our present. That's what Paul is saying here. But look at the ending now of the verse. So you have the therefore that starts it, and then you have this concluding statement. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Just, just think, pause over that for a moment. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If there is no resurrection, nothing really matters in life. Nothing really matters about your life. Nothing really matters about my life. If there's no resurrection, the best strategy you can employ is what Paul says uh, earlier in the chapter when he says, you should just eat, drink, and be merry. If there is no resurrection, the best strategy you could employ, like the best way you could live your life is to eke out all the joy you can while you can. That, that's your best strategy of life if there is no resurrection. But if the resurrection is real, it changes the whole point and purpose of our life. If this is really just pre-life and real life is coming on the other side of the grave, if the resurrection is real, then the best strategy changes. It's no longer eke out all the joy you can while you can. If the resurrection is real, it's do, do all the good you can while you can. Do, do all the good you can while you can. Sacrifice now. Take risk for Jesus now. Impoverish yourself now for the good of others. Love your neighbors right now as you love yourself. Do whatever you can to get the gospel to the unreached people and places of the world. Now, why is that? This is Paul's reasoning for that. Because we know that our labor will not be lost. That's, that's Paul's logic. Because the resurrection is real. And if the resurrection is real, then we know that everything lost now as we abound in the work of the Lord will be found later and enjoyed forever. We know that if the resurrection is real, then, then all things lost now in our work for Jesus will turn into eternal gain. That's the difference the resurrection makes for us right now in this life. It empowers the present. 
So let me finish by giving two examples of how it empowers the present. Uh, One is from the Bible and one is from church history. Uh, So we'll take the biblical example first. Consider James. We have been working through the letter of James uh, on Sunday mornings. And if, if you haven't been a part of that, we would just invite you back next week. We would love to have you thinking about the letter of James with us. Uh, but James, the, the person who penned the letter of James, he was the half-brother of Jesus. And I don't know if you've thought about that, but Jesus had brothers, at least four brothers. And he had sisters, at least two sisters. And James is likely the oldest of Jesus' little brothers. Now, imagine you're James and your big brother Jesus, right? You've known Jesus from your earliest days of your life. Uh, Your big brother Jesus walks into the room and says, uh, James, I don't know how to tell you this, uh, but, you know, yes, I'm your big brother. Uh, Yes, you've known me all of your life, but James, uh, I'm also God. Can you imagine, if you've got an older brother, can you imagine how that would go? Well, it probably went about like it did for James. The Bible shows us how it went for James and his family. In Mark chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus uh, goes to his hometown and a crowd instantly gathers around Jesus. And this was the response of his family when they heard Jesus was in town and a big crowd was around him. In Mark 3, it says, they, talking about Jesus' family, James, his little brother James, they went out to seize Jesus for they were saying, Jesus is out of his mind. James literally thought Jesus had just lost it. James was skeptical. He he was not buying it. He didn't believe this. Now, welcome to how many of us feel about Jesus right now. Many of us, like James, are saying, are you seriously trying to tell me that that Jesus is God? Are you seriously trying to to tell me that that it's with his life, death, and resurrection that a way back to God has been made? Are you seriously trying to tell me that I need to put my faith in a risen Jesus? You're crazy. Now, if you feel that, um, James felt that. That's exactly where James and his family started. And it's okay for you to start there. But at the same time, that's not where James finished. Uh, by the time you get to, to the letter of James, James chapter 1, uh, James, something has happened to James. Uh, James, in James chapter 1, verse 1, uh, says Jesus, that, that's his way of talking about his brother. Uh, that's uh, bringing the humanity into Jesus' life. He was a human being, J- Jesus. Uh, my big brother, James is saying. Uh, James says, Jesus is Lord That's a way of referring to to Jesus as God. James now believes Jesus is God. He says, Jesus is Lord. And then he says, and the Christ. That is a way of saying he is the long-awaited Messiah, the one sent by God to deal with our sins. So it just makes us ask the question, what in the world happened to James? How did he go from Jesus is crazy to Jesus is the Christ. How did that happen? Well, 1 Corinthians shows us what happened to James. After the resurrection, Jesus began to show himself to people. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says he showed himself to over 500 people um, after he was resurrected. And then in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, these, uh, this little phrase shows up, these few words. It says, and then he appeared to James. The risen Jesus appeared to James. And that encounter with the risen Jesus changed James forever. It changed him forever. James went from a skeptic 
Jesus is crazy, he's lost his mind, to a follower of Jesus, then to a pastor and what Paul calls a pillar of the church in Jerusalem, to the author of one of the most beloved books in the New Testament. Friends, welcome to the difference that the risen Jesus makes. He empowers our present. If you're here listening and Honestly, this whole thing, a resurrected, risen Jesus, if, if all that just sounds ridiculous to you, James knows that feeling. And maybe one of the greatest prayers you could pray in just whatever way you would know how right now is just to ask the risen Jesus to show himself to you. Just like he did for James. For, for the risen Jesus to show himself to you. And when the risen Jesus does that, it changes everything everything about our present life. Uh, let me finish by one example now from church history. John Patton, his life abounded in work for Jesus. He was a missionary a few centuries ago to a cannibalistic people in the South Seas. And his friends, people around him, tried to discourage him from going to these cannibalistic people. They didn't want him to go. Uh, one well-meaning friend looked at, at John Patton and said, they're cannibals. Cannibals, you're going to be eaten by cannibals. Don't go. And John Patton, uh, he said this in response. Without, hesitate, uh, without hesitation, Patton replied, I confess to you that if I can live and die serving my Lord Jesus Christ, just abounding in the work of the Lord, then it makes no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. Now, how did he think that way? How did he see the world like that? This last phrase shows us. Here's why. For in the great day of resurrection, my body will rise as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Church, that's the difference that the resurrection has made in the lives of those who follow Jesus throughout church history. It's empowered followers of Jesus to abound in, in the work of Jesus, steady, unmovable, because they know that, that this life now is as close as they will ever get to hell. It's because they, they know that the worst that this life can do to them is death. That's the worst that it can do. And followers of Jesus for centuries have known, and so do we, church, and so does John Patton, that in that day when our death comes, our bodies will rise in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Will you pray with me? And I want to give you just a moment there to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. I'll give you just a moment to ponder the resurrection of Jesus. And today, the risen Jesus is looking at you and he's inviting you into the forgiveness of sin. He's inviting you to turn from all that you know disqualifies you, all that you think somehow qualifies you before God, and to throw your life upon his life, death, and resurrection. 
He's inviting you today to do that. He's inviting you into the forgiveness of sin. Are you sure that you're no longer in your sin, but in Christ? If you're not sure, then today you can, just in the best way that you can, you can call out to God. You can come with the empty hands of faith and say, God, I am trusting in the risen Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection to make me right with you. And God himself will welcome you into the family today. But the risen Jesus is also inviting us to think about his resurrection today and the difference it makes in our lives. To think about the incredibly bright future secured for us in the resurrection. To think about how right now it empowers our present. So, oh God, would you, would you freshly amaze us today? God, I pray that that as we think about the resurrection right now, that grace would just feel to the deepest places of our heart amazing. That it would feel amazing. That it would, it would produce awe in us. And oh God, I pray that we, your people, that we, your people, would abound in the work of Jesus. God, would you do it? And it's in the beautiful name of Jesus that we pray, amen.